You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Happy Sunday, everyone. I don't often broadcast on Sunday nights, but here we are. And I want to thank you for joining me for tonight's teaching. I'm so glad you're here. And this is going to be part three of what I think is going to have to be a four-part series on biblical justice because I realized this week I just could not cover everything in three parts. So uh, I needed to have an extra installment just to make sure I got all of the major topics covered. So um, there will be one more. Sorry about that. Uh, I hope that's okay with you all. But as always, I really hope that you are finding these teachings helpful And in your own journey of understanding the difference between biblical justice and uh, secular social justice, but I also hope that it's helpful in your discipleship with your children, that you'll be able to share these principles with friends and family, your pastor, your teenager, especially your teenager, because really there is very little out there to help us disciple our young people with a solid theology of biblical justice. So I want to help provide quality discussions with lots of specifics so that you can take these ideas and bring them into your conversations because, you know, many of us have children who just naturally gravitate toward these issues because God has made some of our children to be very passionate about justice. They are very empathetic people. And so Rather than casting that to the side, my my hope is to be able to equip parents and pastors to get some handles, get some words on how to disciple these uh, precious hearts and shepherd them in the ways of the Lord. So, you know, it's a good thing if your kid is passionate about justice. And so we want to help uh, teach them to obey all of Jesus's commands Uh, in every aspect of life so that they won't fall into the world's definition of justice. Now, in part one of this series, we laid some important groundwork about how justice is founded on God's holy character. We laid out a definition of justice. And in part two, we started to unfold some of the details of the standards of God's justice. Uh, We looked at the Ten Commandments. We try to differentiate between law and gospel and how they each do different things and understanding their relationship to each other. So in this third installment, we will continue to apply the principles of God's justice standards to our everyday life. And then toward the end of the broadcast tonight, we will discuss what I call the emergence of the new legalism, the new holiness code It is sweeping through many evangelical churches so that you can spot it, you can know when it's being in play, and you can begin to respond to it. Okay, let's get into the teaching here, and let's start by very quickly reviewing a few key points uh, from our previous teachings, and I've entitled this series, The Beauty of Biblical Justice. Now, we said that the most foundational thing we must understand about the biblical definition of justice is that the definition of justice flows out of God's character. Justice cannot be separated from God's holiness or his love or his omnipotence or any of his other attributes. If we want to know what justice is, we must understand that something is just because it flows out of the very character of God. God is just. So God's character is the standard for justice that Christians use. And because God is just, he wants his people to reflect his character and act in ways that are righteous and just too. So as God's people, we actually ought to be way ahead of the culture when it comes to a discussion about justice, because we have the insider information from the source of justice itself, the creator of the universe. 
And so this is why it just breaks my heart as, as a Bible teacher and as a theologian, when people say, I don't want to talk about justice. That's too political to, to not want to talk about justice simply because our culture has hijacked the term and to, to go into a kind of passive posture about it is to neglect something that God says is it comes from the very throne room of where he sits. So we do not want to neglect justice and we want to be a people who act in just ways. Now, in part two, we took a closer look at God's justice standard, which we call God's moral law. And we made a very critical distinction between law and gospel. The gospel is what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done to make a way for us to come into a covenant relationship with God. If you want to know what the gospel is, read Ephesians chapter 1. That's a nice summary of what each of the members of the Holy Trinity have done for our salvation. The law is what God tells us to do in terms of how to love. God and to love our neighbors. Loving God and loving others is the law. It is to follow God's commandments. It is not the gospel. Now, I know that it is very popular right now to say that Christianity is about loving God and loving our neighbor, but that's actually a truncated perspective of our faith. It would likewise be a truncated perspective if we said, well, the only thing I need to do is preach the gospel or believe in the gospel. Rather, Christianity, if we're going to have a fully developed worldview of Christianity, we have to understand both the gospel and what it does, the law and its purpose, and what is the relationship between these two ideas. The law will never save us, but the law does reveal our sinfulness. The law reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals his holy character. And most importantly for our discussion about justice, the law is what reveals God's standard of justice. So with that, let's get into the new material. And the big question we are asking tonight is, how do I live according to God's justice standards? This is a very important question. That's kind of the big question we're going to consider tonight. And the big idea I want you to know when we're acting justly toward others is that justice begins at home. So often right now, when we think of the word justice, when there is a conversation about justice, we we think of images like this, uh, this large protest with with people yelling and and carrying signs, and that that is justice. And sometimes that is how justice might look. But we first want to start with a discussion with where God says justice begins, and it begins in our homes. There is no neighbor that we more closely must love than the neighbors in our own household. And that includes sometimes difficult neighbors, right? Difficult people. So we don't want to get so carried away by the culture's vision for justice. So we think, well, what I need to do in order to stand for justice is go march out in the streets. Now that might be required. We can talk about that. We can have that conversation of when that's appropriate, but that's not where God begins the conversation about justice. And we want to carefully distinguish between two kinds of justice. And so let's look for a minute at the first kind of justice, which is sadaka. Sadaka is often translated into English as the word righteousness, but it is very close to what we call justice. And this is, this is the conformity that you and I live out in our daily life, when we regulate ourselves, when we walk in God's righteous ways, we are walking in 
Sadaka. We are walking in righteousness. It is the conformity to a moral standard as defined by the nature and will of God and revealed in his moral law. And it is reflected in our day-to-day choices that are revealed through our conduct. And when I say that justice begins at home, this is exactly what I mean. I mean, how do we treat the people in our own families, our coworkers, the strangers that we encounter when we check out our groceries, the, the servers who serve us in the restaurants? How do we treat the people that we interact with in everyday life? Are we treating them with fairness, generosity, and equality? That's Sadaka. And so what we must understand about this idea is that it begins is what we sometimes call at the Center for Biblical Unity personal righteousness. It's those choices that I make in my everyday life to live according to God's justice standards. So last time in part two, we looked at the Ten Commandments. And in those second set, the second table of the law from Commandments 5 to 10, these are the things of Sadaka. This is how we walk in righteousness. We honor our father and mother. We don't lie. We don't bear false witness against our neighbor. We don't kill our neighbor. We are faithful in our marriage, and we don't covet our neighbor's possessions. So when you think of of justice, what I want you to do is to, to flip in your mind to stop thinking about justice first as the public sector, as laws in the public sector, as what laws must I enact. And we will get to that. We will get to that form of justice. But justice begins at home. It begins with how I order myself, how I conduct myself in my everyday life, according to God's moral law. And when I say the moral law, I want you to think of commandments five to 10. Okay. So we're going to continue to unfold that. So I want to go through a couple of very practical examples of Sadaka and how this unfolds in our everyday life. So if you're thinking about your own home, your own family, that might mean, how do I conduct myself in the care for the elderly? in my life, my aging parents, the people in my life that God has under my roof or in my sphere of influence. It might mean caring for a disabled child that I have in my family. God's emphasis on justice is not that you run out into the street with protest signs if you are neglecting your family members who are among the vulnerable. Justice begins at home. So if you are caring for a child in your home who is disabled or an elderly parent, you're wanting to reflect on God's moral law in your treatment of them. And that is where justice begins. Here's a few scriptures related to caring for let's say our elderly or aging parents, Exodus 21, 15, anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. The law makes this provision that it, it it assumes, you know, that this is an adult child. And if you kill your elderly parents, that is a capital offense that that is against God's holy law. It breaks the fifth commandment. Anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. This is how seriously God looks at the fifth commandment of honoring father and mother. Because if you are the kind of person, like think about this for a minute, you might think, well, that's awfully extreme, just cursing your father and mother to be put to death. But think about this. If you are the kind of person who curses your parents, it's more than likely you got some other issues too. That you act abusively, toward other people in your life as well. It takes a fairly deviant kind of a person to curse your parents, the people that gave birth to you. Like that is so far from where God wants us 
as his people to be. Stand up for in the stand up in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. So God wants his people to be known as people who honor their parents that don't abuse their parents, don't curse their parents, but instead honor them. It says in Ephesians chapter six, in the New Testament context, it says, honor your father and mother. It's just repeating the fifth commandment, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. If you want to live in God's favor and prosperity, it's part of doing that is honoring your parents. It says in first Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father and anyone who does not provide for their relatives, especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see God's justice what we call his justice plan, his plan of provision is for families to care for each other. That's where it starts. So remember the the family is part of the created order. So when we live according to God's design for family, part of how we order ourselves is that we take care of our parents as they age because they are among the vulnerable. If we want to have God's favor in our lives, that comes with how we treat the people who are older than us, how we respect them, how we make provision for them. So we have to understand that if we're out running around in the street with protest signs, but we are treating our parents disrespectfully, and I know it's, it's popular right now to treat our parents disrespectfully, to call them racist. I think that so much of the secular social justice invites us to break the fifth commandment. And this is where we depart from secular social justice. We do not want to be a stand for something in the name of justice that actually completely contradicts what God has called us to do in keeping the fifth commandment. Okay, so if people you hear people on social media cursing their parents and saying, you know, I, I'm not going to come home for the holidays because my parents are white and they're part of systemic racism. And, and there's an invitation in secular social justice to disrespect the elderly. That is not consistent with God's standard of justice. Well, let's think about the disabled. That's another very vulnerable group who might be living in our homes and under our roofs. It says in God's holy law, cursed is anyone who leads the blind astray on the road. People who engage in deceptive behavior, people who, who deceive or harm the disabled. These are people are cursed under God's covenant. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but Fear your God. See, if somebody is a person who who harms the disabled, the fear of God is not in them. They are living like a pagan, okay? So if we're going to talk about God's justice and being a stand for that in our home or tzedakah, living his, according to God's righteousness in our everyday lives, it is we don't conduct ourselves like the pagans. We don't put hindrances, intentional hindrances in the way of people who are vulnerable, such as the disabled. It says in Galatians chapter six, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the law is still for the Christian. It is still for the new covenant Christian. It is assumed in the New Testament, that you know what God's law is, that you that those principles from God's moral law are being brought into the new covenant context. And so as we bear with one another's burdens, people in our homes that are vulnerable and weak and need our help, they need our compassion, 
we are fulfilling the law of Christ. So how else may we think about our personal righteousness? How else may we, may we think about Sadaka and living out God's principles? Well, I'd like to make a suggestion um, about widows and orphans. We live in an age when we have in some communities almost 70% of our children growing up without a father in the home. In other communities, it's, it's at least a third. It's a lot of children growing up without fathers. And I think that in a way, these are kind of the modern day widows and orphans, children who are born into single parent families. They are the victims of divorce. They are the ones who are lonely and they want to be seen by their father. As a child, when I was growing up in a, in a single parent family, I was raised by my mother. There was nothing my precious heart wanted more than for a man to see me, to hear me, to listen to me, to see my heart and to help me. And I couldn't articulate that. I didn't know how to put that into words, but that is the universal human longing is to have an intact two-parent family. Why? Because that is God's created design for children. That is God's created design for marriage. And family is God's created design for the foundation of society. So let's look at a few principles from God's law related to this issue. It says in Exodus chapter 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. Now I want you to notice how it couples these, these groups together, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. We see that many times in God's moral law. And notice it says, if you pervert justice, and what does it mean to pervert justice for these categories of vulnerable people? These are people that are often among the poor, and they're the people that can't bribe judges. They can't necessarily get their needs heard. They need extra help. And God says to, to not do those things would be to pervert justice. So even back then, the fatherless and the widow were part of culture, but God's provision for them was that the righteous people, the people who were practicing sadaka, would help them come alongside them and not pervert justice, make sure that they could get their grievances heard, that they would be heard, um, you know, that the, the rich would not be favored in the justice system over the poor. It says in Isaiah chapter one, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And again, this is in the context of a law court that we don't favor the rich over the poor. And to pervert justice in this context is to do things like engaging in bribes or applying double standards of giving poor people harsher jail sentences than rich people because rich people can buy their way out of things. This is what the Bible means when it talks about perverting justice. If you uh, want to listen back to my previous series on justice, I go into a lot more detail about that from last summer um, in the wake of George Floyd and, and understanding how some of these things affect our legal system. Okay. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. I want you to notice something here. It says religion that the Father accepts. I know that it is common today to say that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. But it's actually both. It is a religion that is, it is deeply rooted in our relationship with God. And because we are sinners and we have been forgiven much and God looks after our needs, we have the obligation to look after others. And notice again that even for the new covenant Christian, it is widows and orphans that we are supposed to be looking after the vulnerable 
and these people who, who need to be seen. Um, and this isn't always merely just physical needs, although it involves physical needs, but it also involves, I think, trying to repair the ruins, repair what's been broken, to have godly men in the local church who can help rally around these young people and give them mentoring and provide them with a critical voice. I know that for me, my uncles played that role in my life in giving me critical wisdom that I needed uh, to make healthy decisions. But if those male voices aren't there, if those male voices aren't giving that godly wisdom, it is highly likely that that child, that fatherless child will repeat the cycle and have more children out of wedlock themselves in that family and bring more difficulty and hardship for themselves. If we are going to repair the ruins, we're going to have to think about how can I walk righteously? How can I practice tzedakah? in the lives of the people around me who are fatherless and need that voice in their lives. So I hope that that gives you some tangible things to think about of how do we live out in God's righteousness. Now, the second kind of justice in the Old Testament is that of mishpat. And you might have heard of that word before, um, and it is often translated justice, but it is very closely related to sadaka, which is righteousness. And sometimes these words are even paired right next to each other. Now, mishpat is more of the realm of judges, laws, and law courts. This is what we think of, <coughs> excuse me, this is what we think of when sometimes we think of the word justice. It is the realm of judges, laws, law courts, policies, procedures, and that kind of thing. Mishpat is about punishing wrongdoers and caring for the victims of unjust treatment. And this is the type of justice that is specifically mentioned in Micah 6, 8, where we are called to, quote unquote, do justice or live justly. It is Mishpat justice. So how do we begin to think this through? Um, what we want to think about is in our culture, what's happening is the law courts and judges and specifically the face, the public face of justice is the police. And I know it's very popular now to call the police names to put them down, to call them racist, to say that the entire policing system is the result of systemic racism. And I get that. That is the cultural posture. But I also want to call our attention to the fact of the, the, the face, the face of the officer, the face of this police officer that is looking at you right now is an image bearer. He is someone who is created in the image of God. So in our zeal to, to talk about, you know, whether or not a particular law or practice has ethnic partiality built into it, we don't want to fall into the trap of so villainizing the police, the military, calling them names, because to do that is to speak a curse over an image bearer and the book of James in James chapter three, it says with the tongue, we praise our Lord and father. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing my brothers and sisters. This should not be. Now I know in secular social justice, the hip thing to do right now is to pronounce curses and call names over the police and the military to call them slurs. But this is not how God's people ought to order themselves. When we walk in personal righteousness, when we walk in Sadaka, we don't pronounce curses over people 
that way. We know that those human persons are created in God's likeness. So when we think about the public square, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about Mishpat because I covered that in a lot of detail in my previous series on justice and looking at a lot of public policies and all of that. But what I do want us to call our attention to is that when we think about the the laws and the law structures, this is what we mean by mishpat. And we want to make sure that we are not putting laws in place that favor the rich over the poor or that favor the poor over the rich. These are principles of God's justice that when we're talking about the public square in the public sector, we want there to be equality under the law, which is something that we hit on in the first part of this teaching series. Another thing that I've noticed in the secular social justice conversation is when we see images like this, of this man in the aftermath of his store being looted after a riot. Imagine a lifetime of hard work being swept away by the mob in just a few minutes. This is a devastating situation for this man. And we don't want to engage in saying that a violation of God's commandment against theft is now vaulted to being a a justice issue. When secular social justice says that it is okay to break God's holy laws and it's okay to steal if we do it in a mob and we are somehow engaging in Robin Hood theology of robbing from the rich to give to the poor, none of that mentality is biblical. None of that is a reflection of God's standard of justice. This man is a human person. And and many businesses that were destroyed, that get destroyed in riots, are owned just by regular people who are trying to live righteously to support their families. As we saw earlier in the scriptures, a person who does not support their family lives like a pagan. And so if we're going to think about God's created order, part of God's created order is that we work and then we use that work to earn an honest living and support our families. So we don't want to turn theft into a virtue. If we're turning theft into a virtue because it's in a mob, then we are going against God's justice standard. It says in Exodus chapter 23, You shall not give a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked person to be a malicious witness. In other words, we don't lie on the witness stand. That goes against God's standard of justice. It goes against mishpat justice. You shall not follow the crowd in doing evil. You nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to join together with a crowd in order to pervert justice. You shall nor shall you show favor to a poor person in his dispute. God's standard of justice demands, mishpat justice demands equality under the law. We don't favor the rich and we don't favor the poor. We don't collude to lie on the witness stand simply because somebody is poor. We don't protect people who have broken the law simply because they are poor. And we don't run with the mob to break God's holy laws in the name of justice. We might think about the matter this way. If we practiced more tzedakah, more personal righteousness, then mishpat justice would become less necessary. In the words of Jesus, he said, if you, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Jesus's commands are simply an extension of what God already told us in the old covenant. If I practice more righteousness, more personal righteousness in my home, in my personal dealings, in my business dealings with others, if I treat people fairly and with honesty and with integrity, sadaka, personal righteousness, then mishpat justice becomes less necessary. I don't get arrested because I've defrauded people in court. 
<coughs> or in my business. Mishpat justice becomes necessary when I engage in defrauding people, lying to people, um, murdering people, harming people, then the law courts have to intervene. Uh, so here's just a few uh, little tips to wrap up this section on practical living, righteousness versus justice and all of that is next time your social media blows up, be slow to speak, quick to listen and avoid anger. And I know that's hard, but this is part of God's law. If you will, it's part of obeying all of Christ's commands Uh, in James chapter one. It gives us this wisdom. Um, We could say, wait for truth to be established by investigation. Scripture calls this the uh, use of two or three witnesses, establishing the truth through two or three witnesses. I know it's tempting that when you see a video going viral to think you know the whole story, but the posture of the thoughtful Christian steps back, is slow to speak, doesn't react, and has a posture of, I will wait for truth to be established through two or three witnesses. And by witnesses, that could be forensic evidence. It could be um, camera phones. It could be a lot of different kinds of witnesses, eyewitnesses who are there. It could be incident reports, police reports, all of these kinds of things. But the Christian ought to be known for not just engaging in knee-jerk reactions. Um, The Christian ought to be known as waiting for truth to be established through two or three witnesses. Now, I understand the call of secular social justice is to engage in a call to action, a call to renouncing things. But that is not how the Christian operates. We don't slander one another. Slander is something that is mentioned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Don't follow the crowd and doing wrong, as we just looked at in Exodus 23. And manifesting love and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If your vision or your framework for justice looks more like the deeds of the flesh mentioned in Galatians chapter 5 than the fruit of the Holy Spirit, if it looks more like a call to rage than a call to kindness, you might have the wrong frame for justice. If, if your lens for how you act and what you call, how you respond to injustice looks more like fits of rage and anger and, and that kind of a thing, that might be a time to check in with yourself about how, whether or not you have the proper framework for justice. So in this final Um, section tonight of the teaching, I want to talk about the question, how can I be a good person? This is really what I think is the main question in the back of a lot of people's minds right now. They, They are very much wanting to be liked by the culture. They want the culture to see them as being a good person. And I'm going to touch on what I call the new holiness code or the new legalism, because we just outlined many principles. We gave you many scriptures of how God says we ought to be holy, how we obey his commands. Okay. But now we're going to look at what secular social justice is calling us to. How do we be a good person? What is the holiness code that I need to live by according to the ways of the the world? And so I'm going to draw our attention to this diagram that's all over the internet of explaining white supremacy. White supremacy, you see that big thick line there um, over the triangle, lynching hate crimes, using the N word. This is what our culture calls over white supremacy, socially unacceptable. So only evil people, according to our culture, engage in those, in those behaviors. 
But then look under the, the line there. It says covert white supremacy. Here we have things like, let's pick one. There's a couple at the bottom. Celebrating Columbus Day is now a covert form of white supremacy. Um, saying that we are, our goal is to live in a post-racial society. That is white supremacy. Telling a person of color that they are articulate is a form of covert white supremacy. Uh, there was one where it said, oh, to say there's only one human race is a form of covert white supremacy. My shirt <laughs> would be a form of covert white supremacy and saying that there is one race. Yes. Um, saying that I am colorblind would be a form of covert white supremacy. Saying we're one big human family, something that we like to say a lot. Engaging in meritocracy, rewarding people for what they have earned is covert white supremacy. So if I want to be a good person in today's culture, these are the, the holiness codes that I must live by. And if I do these things and if I refrain from these phrases, then I will be labeled by the culture to be a good person. And I would like to suggest that these are man-made holiness laws. And that this kind of a thing is the very definition of legalism. Legalism is not laws. I know that many people think the talking about God's law is legalism. It's not legalism. Talking about God's law is about how do I obey all of the commands that Christ has given us. Legalism is man-made laws. Laws that humans make up that aren't in the Bible. They, there aren't, isn't even a principle in the Bible. And I make up a law to help us be a good person. It's what I call the new holiness code. Now, there are some things on here that I might be able to get behind. I might be able to say, you know what? Lynching, the very tippy top there, lynching is a violation of God's holy law. But I evaluate that in light of God's holy law. Lynching would be ethnic partiality combined with murder. Okay. That is a capital crime, according to scripture. So I evaluate these things according to scripture, not culture. Using a racial slur is a violation of James chapter three. We just read those verses, okay? Engaging in racist jokes is a violation of God's holy law. It diminishes uh, the person's image of God, their di human dignity. But there are other things on this list, such as saying there's one human race. I look at that in comparison to scripture and I say, no, that that is actually part of the way that is part of the, the Christian worldview. From one man came the whole human race. That's actually a biblical idea. So we have to weigh these things out carefully. But when the culture comes at us and says, Here's what you must do in order to be a good person, a holy person. And if you don't abide by these standards, you are wicked. You are evil. That is legalism. If it doesn't correspond to God's holy law. Let's look at another example here of the holiness codes, holiness laws. This is from Robin DiAngelo's book, um, it's not white fragility. It's the other one. I'm sorry. I should have included that uh, reference. But if you could see here on the left, here are the minority groups, um, according to Robin D'Angelo. And then in the middle are the isms, the oppression, what we call it. And then on the right are the oppressors, the people who are deemed as we might call them unjust or wicked. Well, we notice that a white person is in the category of, of wicked, Christians, heterosexuals, men, able-bodied, Gentiles, young, 
middle-aged adults, citizens. I mean, these are, we, we could add gender conforming merit married uh, would be in there. These are all of the oppressor classes. So if I want to be a good person, if I want to have the culture respect me, I need to engage in allyship for the people that are in the left-hand column. Well, the problem is, is that this labels white people as having a particular problem that the Bible doesn't talk about. There is no injunction or part of God's law that says people with less melanin commit these types of sins and people with more melanin are exempt from these types of sins. To think that way is to think unbiblically. To think of uh, people who are engaging in the LGBT lifestyle as being people that we need to normalize, we need to normalize that lifestyle, is to um, put something as a justice issue that God calls sin. But if I'm going to live according to the man-made holiness laws, the legalism, I must advance, normalize, and create allyships with all of these people on the left-hand column. This creates a lot of confusion. And yet, this is exactly how our culture thinks. This is what our culture is telling us justice is. When we think about these things, what I want you to know is that we don't need a sociology book to tell us about justice. The Bible gives us what we need in order to understand God's standard of justice. We need to go to scripture first to understand what God says is just or unjust. And we have that standard in place. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. How do I be a good person? I look in scripture. That's how I know I'm a good person. I obey God's laws. I live a life of humble obedience. How do I know how to walk in tzedakah, in righteousness? I look in scripture, and then I will be fully capable and equipped for every good work. Second Peter chapter 1 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, for his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. If I want to know how to live a righteous life, a just life, I look in scripture. That's where I go. I don't go to a sociology book first to find out how to live righteously and holy. I look in scripture. Now, I might find something in the sociology book that corresponds to what I see in scripture. We saw that in the, the triangle um, diagram. We saw some things on there that were like, yeah, I could get behind that lynching. Not, that's, not, that's not good. That's, that's against God's law. But how do I know that that is against God's law? Because I've looked in God's law. That's how I know it's an injustice is because I go compare it with scripture. I start with scripture. I focus on scripture. Now I can look in a sociology book and they can tell me some things and then I can, I can say, well, let me weigh that out. Let me, let me see if that's what the Bible actually has to say. And I can do that. But at the end of the day, if I don't have any, if I don't have any sociology books, that's okay. Because ultimately I know how to order my life according to Sadaka. I know what Mishpat looks like because I have looked in God's law. I have read his holy commands and I am asking the Lord to empower me through the power of the Holy Spirit to live a holy and humble life before him. That all of my allegiance belongs to God and that I will live 
according to his commands. And then when I think about the great commission of Matthew 28, 19 and 20, it says all authority under heaven has been given to me. Therefore go make disciples, baptizing him in the name of the father, son, and Holy spirit. That's the gospel and teaching them to obey all of my commands. That's the law. So if I want to talk about justice, it's a part of discipleship. It's part of teaching people to obey all of Christ's commands. I want to thank you for watching tonight. And um, hopefully you're finding this, this discussion helpful uh, in the final installment of this teaching series. Next time, we're going to discuss the relationship between the gospel and justice. And how do we get the big vision to transform the culture? What difference does this all make? And why is the gospel needed in order to have a discussion about justice and to truly begin to change and transform um, lives and entire cultures? And we'll continue to talk about some practical ways of how we um, can see that lived out in the past and in the present. But I think that as Christians, we must advocate for justice in the public square, in our homes, in our churches, in principles that are actually rooted and grounded in Scripture. We cannot allow ourselves to be swept away by the mob when it comes to secular social justice. And I want to thank all of you for your support. Your support is really what makes live streams like this possible, allowing me to transition out of my job and reasons to believe into full-time ministry. I want to thank all of you who have come on board to become part of my monthly support team. Um, if you would like to join that effort and help partner with me for ministry and keeping this ministry going, um, I would love to have your partnership. If you go to the center for biblical slash donate, you can select on there. One of the items is my salary. You can become a monthly partner and help support me. But it's really because of the support of people just like you that make it possible for me and Monique to do live streams, teach classes, create these valuable resources that you can share with your friends and family and pastors. Um, we wouldn't be able to do this if it wasn't for your support. So I just want to say thank you so much for all that you do to help support the ministry. Make sure you share the show. That's another great way to support the ministry. May God bless you and good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.